It's October 7, 2022. This is the Room Now podcast, and I'm Dr. Jack Cush here for you to discuss all the great things in rheumatology from the last week or so. A few things. One, we are six weeks away from ACR Convergence 2022 being held live in Philadelphia for many of us who will be going and many of you will be staying home. Uh, many of you will be staying home and watching this virtually. Many of you will be staying home and not watching this virtually because, you know, it's kind of an odd thing. Um, and hybrid meetings are not for everyone. You know, follow room now. We've got a fabulous faculty of almost 20 people who will be working for you to cover the meeting and give it to you um, starting that Saturday, Sunday, Monday. And then we're going to follow up with another day on Tuesday uh, of reports. Lots of videos, lots of podcasts, lots of good written content. Be sure to follow us six weeks from now at ACR 2022. This week in the news, nothing but pure excitement. Um, first report has to do with nothing to do with rheumatology, but I found it interesting because it gets to the core of the issue as to how we get disease and uh, some of the thinking on preclinical disease and this particular microbiome assessment of patients with cancer showed that there was an overabundance of certain fungal, fungi uh, and speci especially candidal, candidal species uh, in patients who had either GI cancer or lung cancers. Uh, again, having these um, microbiome shifts towards fungi and candida also seem to be predictive of worse outcomes in the GI cancer patients. Why is that important? Well, there is this curious interplay of the immune system and the microbiome that's going on, especially at the level of the gut. Is that the forerunner to disease uh, as we know it, as we see it? Uh, I think this is a good model of uh, where environment may lead to changes in immune activation, uh, and if gone too far, maybe a cancer risk. So I found that really interesting and helps to inform my thinking. Uh, baricitinib, as you know, since the start of the COVID pandemic, uh, has played a prominent role. Early on, it was identified as not just a JAK inhibitor that was powerfully anti-inflammatory, but as a JAK inhibitor that also had antiviral properties. And you know, it had an early um, emergency use, use authorization by the FDA, especially being used in combination with remdesivir. If you looked at those trials critically, you'll see that really baricitinib was doing most of the heavy living. Well, there's a nice full read uh, analysis of, of baricitinib in COVID trials, looking at over 25 studies and three very large randomized controlled trials, showing quite conclusively that baricitinib is pretty consistent in that it helps, mostly in sick hospitalized patients, mostly showing reduced mortality rates or reduced hospital stays. There were a few studies where it didn't change mortality rate, but it did have other benefits. Uh, again, I think that uh, baricitinib uh, is a great drug, uh, especially for patients with very sick uh, uh, cases of COVID. I found this next report to be a bit surprising, but then again, I shouldn't be surprised. So what's the next new potentially useful drug in refractory dermatomyositis? Yeah, you're already guessing a JAK inhibitor. Wrong. We've already covered that. I found a report of eight patients treated with a premolest. 
That's right, Otesla. These are patients with recalcitrant cutaneous dermatomyositis who had failed other therapies and then were given open-label standard dose of Primalast, 30 milligrams BID. And after three months, eight out of the seven patients responded with a drop in their skin scores of almost 13 points. That's using the something like the Classy, but this is the C-Dassy. Um, Victoria Worth and others have promulgated this as a good skin measure outcome. Um, but more importantly, when they looked at those patients and did skin biopsies before and after, they showed significant downregulation of a number of inflammatory pathways, including those involving STAT1, STAT3, IL-4, IL-6, IL-12, IL-23, TNF-alpha, uh, and uh, interferon gamma as well. Now, early on in the days of Apremilash trials, I really couldn't figure out what the mechanism of action of Apremilash was. I still don't think I have a clear understanding. I, and I don't know if these particular signals downregulating inflammatory pathways are truly cause and effect between apremilast and cytokine expression. Uh, in fact, those could all have changes by the patient getting better with one of these mechanisms being affected. But nonetheless, I don't think we could think often that thought of apremilast as a drug that might be useful here, and maybe this kind of open-label study will prompt really well-done controlled trials. The marketing arm of the pharmaceutical injury, PHRMA, don't know what it stands for, but they're always touting the the wonders of the pharmaceutical industry, and often with good cause. They had a, just a simple review stating that, you know, most of what's going on in the United States right in the United States right now is chronic healthcare management and that there's over eight hundred or nearly eight hundred drugs that are in drug development, phase one through phase three in the United States for the treatment of chronic diseases. And they go down the list from cancer and and diabetes and whatnot. In our realm, uh, rheumatologic and arthritis drugs, this would include therapies for OA, RA, PSA, gout, etc., that there's 70 drugs currently in development in the U.S. Uh, with about a little more, almost 40% of those currently in phase three. So there is a lot going on compared to other chronic diseases where, I mean, everybody's got arthritis and, uh, and yet we don't get the same amount of drug development. Nonetheless, it is a goodly amount, if you will, uh, and they're, they are pretty far along. Again, the importance of what you do is reflected by this activity. And remember, you, the rheumatologist, control what is currently about a $50 billion industry in the United States. That is uh, anti-arthritic and rheumatic drugs. Uh, a study of radiographic axial spondyloarthritis patients looked at their retention over time. Uh, nearly 150 patients followed uh, for um, a number, I think almost two years. And the bottom line is that uh, of all the, uh, uh, the, the main outcome was secukinumab retention was 55% at one, at one year. Okay, but is that really good? What was associated with um, a better retention or a lower discontinuation rates? Strangely enough, obesity. 29% in the obese and 50% in the non-obese. Uh, patients who uh, had had prior multiple TNF inhibitor failures had higher rates of secukinumab discontinuation. That's not surprising. You fail multiple drugs, you go on another one, you're more likely to fail it. 
again, getting a handle as to who's going to respond to some of these newer and more expensive therapies. We really need the tools, you know, whether it's a, a biomarker or something gleaned from, you know, AI and, art and uh, machine learning really is what we need to know what our next choice is going to be beyond a non-steroidal, beyond a TNF inhibitor, for instance. Uh, another look at, at fibrosis and scleroderma uh, using mainly in vitro models showed that there were low levels of the anti-fibrotic protein endostatin, and endostatin's release is driven by cathepsin L. There are multiple studies showing low cathepsin L, uh, and that being somewhat inappropriate in patients with scleroderma, and that's what these studies showed again. This basically points to cathepsin L and endostatin as potential therapeutic targets for the future. A review of the arthropathy and myopathy, or myalgia, as I should say, uh, seen with COVID-19 infections is also online, and it's a full-length uh, report, so it's got lots and lots of references, uh, uh, well, enough references for you. But in, actually, in this study, they, had, they just surveyed over 3,000 patients with proven COVID-19 infections, um, and only a third of them met inclusion criteria. That was unfortunate. But yet of this uh, 1,065 patients, um, the number who had musculoskeletal complaints was high, meaning that after they had infection or actually during infection, uh, 26% had arthralgia and 52% had myalgia either during or after the COVID-19 um, infection. Again, the symptoms often persisted even with resolution of the COVID-19 infection so that that 26% Arthralgia went down to 9.9% after COVID was controlled, and that the 53% uh, myalgia went down to 6%. So we're talking about a continuation of symptoms, and that brings up the issue not addressed in this particular paper, and that being long COVID. I'm seeing a number of patients in the last year, especially, who've had strange musculoskeletal complaints uh, nothing hard, nothing progressive, no, 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 no true inflammatory synovitis or myositis sort of things. And a lot of these are falling under the heading of long COVID. I think some of this is um, resolution of infection. I think some of this is the sort of shock to system that leads to poor sleep and secondary myofascial pains and other strange symptomatology. But we need to get a better understanding of what's going on with long COVID. So uh, in this particular study, the patients who had COVID arthralgias were more likely hospitalized, have sore throat, have fatigue, and lose their taste and smell. So uh, the other thing is, what's the value of vaccination? They really didn't have enough data to look at this, but they did show for those who didn't receive the vaccine, uh, uh, we'll just call that a full dose or course of either the Moderna or the BioNTech Pfizer or the Janssen um, vaccines, that there were higher rates of, my, of myalgia, 58% versus 51%, not that much higher, but the higher rates of arthralgia in those not getting the vaccine, that's 30% versus 16%. Something to look out for. Published on... Um, rheumatology salaries this uh this week and and i think that you know that's up there for your reference we usually try to find that reference when it comes across 
from Medscape this year. I got a few other new sources out there. And you know what? They're all kind of similar. That the average salary of the rheumatologist ranges from about two hundred to 300000 nationwide. Uh, it does differ with where you are in your training. You'll make less when you're starting out. You'll make more after you've been in practice for, you know, 30 years or so. Uh, that's a long time to wait, is it not? Uh, it took me a long time to make a reasonable salary, I must tell you. Uh, I'd be ashamed to tell you what I made my early days working uh, for a medical school, but that was okay. That's what I wanted to do. I did a lot of research. I learned a lot. It was invaluable, and it was a reasonable price for me to pay at the time. Um, again, I think you should know that there it changes in different regions across the country. I have three here, three higher salaries in the United States. Was Morgan County, Colorado, five hundred ninety thousand; Eagle County, Colorado, two five hundred thirty-seven thousand; and Rice County, Minnesota, five hundred fourteen thousand dollars a year. What? If you look at the proximity map on rheumatologist salaries, you'll see that both coasts, the East Coast, the West Coast, the Northeast, they're really well paid. Generally over three hundred k, but not astronomical. Some of the worst paying places are actually in the middle of the country. Some of the best paying uh, locales are in the middle of the country. And I want to say like Michigan, uh, Illinois, I said Minnesota, some parts of Indiana, Missouri, parts of Texas. My theory at this point is wherever there's good barbecue, the rheumatology salaries are the highest. Uh, And let's see if that holds up. You'll let me know what your barbecue uh, proficiency is where you work and how much you make when I next see you. Um, Lastly, there was this interesting report from in MedPage today about women doctors were twice as likely to be called by their first name in patient messaging systems on EHRs. So looking at EHRs and a large cohort, the women had a odds ratio 2.15 of being called by their first name. So not Dr. Maher, it would be Lisa. Um, and, you know, as, uh, and, and it, you know, it happens to men too, but it's much less likely with men. It's more likely, interestingly, with DOs than MDs, and that applies to both men and women. It applies um, more with males talking or messaging than females. Females tend to be a little bit more, female patients tend to be a little bit more appropriate um, in what they label their doctor as. Um, And primary care um, doctors are also less likely, um, um, I'm sorry, a little bit more likely to be called by their first names, but only about 50% more likely to odds ratio 1.5. This is called untitling, not using the person's proper title, such as Dr. Cush, Dr. Kavanaugh, Dr. Marola. Um, and the question is, is that, is that a bad thing? Is that uh, a form of disrespect? Um, does the lack of formality change the physician-patient relationship or what goes on? You know, um, I think it's important to note here that um, in this particular report, I think it's damaging for women that are treated this way, women in medicine, because there's lots of examples of this sort of thing happening, um, more so to women than to men. In spite of the fact that women actually probably spend more time on the, the EHR than men, they document with longer notes, they get more patient messages than do male colleagues. 
and yet to receive another level of disrespect, I think, is, is, is eroding. And, you know, ask any of your female physician colleagues and they'll tell you how they're not referred to as doctor. They're referred to as honey. Um, can you go get me the doctor or honey? Can you give me my shot now? You know, again, it's about proper roles. And since rheumatology of all specialties is going to be female dominant um, in the next decade, uh, and forever to come. Um, we need to work on, again, that proper patient relationship. For years, I have been called by a minority of my patients by my first name or by my last name without a doctor in front of it. Kush, I need a refill on that methotrexate. Or, or Jack, I want to talk to you about my side effects. And, you know, um, I'm sort of doing bad accents of my patients who use that. Um I was a little less concerned with the formality um, and the patient respect because this is usually coming to patients who have been coming to me for a long time who I've got a good, strong relationship with, and I have to pick my battles about what's important to me as a male physician. I don't think it's quite as easy for women. My advice to women is, and my advice to all of you actually, is to be who you're supposed to be. Dress like a doctor. Act like a doctor. Don't wear jeans to work, you know, wear a tie, um, be respectful. If they call you by your first name, you call them by their last name. And you make sure that you have five people come into the room and address you as Dr. Cush or Dr. Marola while that patient's calling you, you know, Joe or Joey or whatever, so that they'll slowly get the message. The way we do it around here is like this. And that is the best thing for a really good physician-patient relationship. With that in mind, I'll tell you to keep, in, keep us in mind when it comes to ACR. And since this is all about That's Not My Name, I'm going to end with a song by the Ting Tings, which I think is quite memorable. And maybe you will too. I think you get my point. Take good care. See you next week.